Joyful, joyful Lord, we adore Thee, God of glory, Lord of love. Hearts unfold like flowers before Thee, hail Thee as the sun above Mount the clouds of sin, sin and sadness. Drive the dark of doubt away. Giver of immortal gladness, fill us, fill us with the light of day. Light of day. Some of you may know that the next words in that particular arrangement are, check the rhyme. <laughs> uh, from Sister Act 2, my personal favorite of the Joyful Joyfuls, I don't rap. Um, what some of you may not know is that I don't sing either. <laughs> I, I love to sing in groups, but I don't like to sing by myself. It makes me very nervous. It makes me very fearful. Uh, I picture in my head uh, the voice of my high school drama teacher who told me that I was great at plays, but I should really avoid musicals the first time that I, the first time that I tried out for one. And I think, oh, I, I, sh I shouldn't be singing by myself. <laughs> um, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. That song, that song makes me so joyful. <laughs> it's like my fear is gone. That song makes me so joyful. Nervousness has no hold on my heart. I don't care about whether I sound good or not. I care about that connection I feel to the universe. <laughs> when I sing, joyful, joyful, Lord, we adore thee. Hearts unfold like flowers before thee. The joy is bigger. It's bigger than my fear, and it's bigger than almost any other emotion we can have. In a list in the scriptures of the fruits of the Spirit, the fruits of the Holy Spirit, joy comes second and second only to love. These are the big ones, joy and love and hope and faith, the ones that no other passing feeling or emotion could ever possibly stand up to. This is how joy works. For the last several weeks, we've been doing this sermon series on our feelings and on our emotions through the movie Inside Out. <laughs> we've talked about anger and fear and disgust and all of these other things that we live with. Emotions that have purpose, emotions that can be good for us, but none of them compare to joy. Because those other emotions, those other feelings, are feelings that we are made with. They serve a purpose, they're a part of us, they're part of how we are created, they are helpful. But joy, joy is what we are made for. Joy is what we are made for. Other emotions are a part of our hearts, they're a part of our palate, but joy is what God intended to share with us when God made us. Think about that creation story, the first verse, the first act, right? God made the fish to swim and the trees to grow and the stars to sing. And God made us and said that it was all good. 
that it was all good. The first intention, the first intention was for joyful sharing, for rejoicing in love, for us to have joy in one another and joy in God and for God to have joy in us. Joy is part of what we are made for. And we also had freedom, and we also experienced brokenness, and later came the shame and the disgust and the fear and the anger, but joy and love and hope and faith, joy is what we're made for. What is joy, though? Let's, let's get it straight before we, before we go on, because joy can be a tricky one to get your hands around, to wrap your head into joy is not the same thing as happiness. Happiness is good. I wouldn't reject happiness. Uh, there's a book that came out last year called All Joy, No Fun, which is about the act of parenting in modern life, right? This is, this is the claim that it's all sort of incandescent, transcendent experiences, but the everyday part is kind of, you know, really tough and hard. That's the claim of the book. Um, and when I read it, I started feeling like that sort of fun happiness, right? The fun that you experience when you um, do something that's pleasurable or that distracts you, go to a movie that you like, right? Drink something that you like, eat something that you like, that kind of happiness. Our society is sort of set up to be the opposite of that book title. It's all happiness, no joy. All happiness, no joy. We've got lots of momentary uh, gratification satisfaction. We've got lots of momentary pleasures and entertainments on offer. And this is not the kind of place where we feel ashamed of those, right? We, we can trust feeling good here. We're not the kind of Christians who say, oh, it made you happy. Eliminate it from the earth. Um, happiness is good. Happiness is fine. I am glad when I experience happiness because I go to a big, you know, Michael Bay explosion movie and feel like I'm in the middle of uh, a, a, a stimulating experience and it makes me happy or I eat a chocolate cake and it makes me happy. But happiness isn't joy. It's not the same thing. And it's not enough to only ever have happiness. You need that joy. That joy feeds you. That joy is something deeper and richer and better. So I was searching, searching for um, a description of what this joy thing is, of how it's different. And the best one, an emotional attunement between oneself and the world that is experienced as a blessing that is experienced as a blessing, right? It's something that connects us to something bigger, to someone else, when things just feel right. It feels like how things are supposed to be, and we experience it as something that we're grateful for. When I think of my first experience of true joy that I can remember, I think there were lots throughout my childhood, um, but as an adult, well, a semi-adult, a teenager, um, <laughs> halfway there. Uh, I remember as a teenager, uh, my gym class, we would run a mile every day, and we were running outside. Um, and, you know, the, mon the mundane can bring you joy, too. The ordinary can bring you joy. I had just gotten new contacts, so I could see for the first time in a while. <laughs> like, my old ones had gotten old, and so I could, could only see pretty close to me. And all of a sudden, I could see farther, um, and so I was looking at all these things that had been there the whole time. I ran a mile there three times a week. Um, I was looking at the brick buildings that housed our research facilities, and I was looking at the grass that everybody picnicked on, and, and I caught sight of a tree 
and I saw the leaves. And I saw the veins of the leaves, and I saw the sun shining on them, and I saw drops of water dripping off of them, and something in my heart just went, yes, this is perfect. <laughs> this is beautiful. That is so gorgeous, I can't believe that it's real. <laughs> something amazing is true. Something amazing is real. Something amazing is in the world, and something amazing is happening here. That was joy for me in that moment, a sense that what I was seeing, what I was experiencing, and how the world is supposed to be were for one moment the same. For one moment, I could see underneath to the wonder, to the God layer, to the greatness. A lot of people have this experience in nature. When you think about those moments of joy and wonder, it might be a sunset, it might be a hike, it might be a cat who curled itself around your ankle. Or for others of you, those moments of joy might be deeper, a time when you knew that you were in service to the world in a way that you were proud of. A moment in one of your relationships with someone in your family or a new partner where you felt totally in tune with them in a way that was not explicable or explainable and you wouldn't have wanted to. Joy is where we um, see the wonders of the world, where we see God at work, and where what we see in the world seems to us to be the same as how the world should be all the time. There's an attunement, and it's an attunement that we're thankful for. That day when I saw the trees, I understood for the first time. Um, I grew up non-religious, so I had never read the Bible at that point, but I had read the Chronicles of Narnia, <laughs> which is a pretty good plan B. <laughs> uh, gets at a lot of the same themes, gets at a lot of the same stories. And in that moment, I understood for the first time this quote, which for those of you who have not read the Chronicles of Narnia, um, it's a fantasy story about children and animals who have many adventures, many beautiful and wonderful adventures. And in the last book, um, there's a, sorry, to find the quote first, there we go. Um, in the last book, there's a last battle for the, the kingdom of Narnia, which has been this place of so much both joy and sadness and difficulty and hurt. And after that last battle, um, those who have a relationship with Aslan, who, spoiler alert, is a stand-in for God and Jesus, <laughs> um, start to go somewhere different. They start to go somewhere better. They start to go towards something that we might call the kingdom or that we might call heaven. And here is how he describes it. It is as hard to explain how this sunlit land was different from the old Narnia as it would be to tell you how the fruits of that country taste. Perhaps you can get some idea of it if you think of it like this. You may have been in a room in which there was a window that looked out on a lovely bay of the sea or a green valley that wound away among mountains. And in the wall of that room opposite, there may have been a looking glass. And as you turned away from the window, you suddenly caught sight of the sea or the valley all over again in the looking glass. 
And the sea in the mirror, or the valley in the mirror, were in one sense just the same as the real ones. Yet at the same time, they were somehow different, deeper, more wonderful, more like places you heard of in a story, in a story you have never heard but you very much want to know. The difference between the old Narnia and the new Narnia was like that. The new one was a deeper country. Every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. Looked as if it meant more. When people talk about um, the heavens, when they talk about the kingdom, when they talk about what God wants for us, they often talk about it like it's some totally different, totally other thing, separate from anything any of us have experienced. But what God promises us is that it is this world that God intends to be made great, that it is this world that God intends to redeem, that the things here are not perfect. They are hurtful and they are painful and sometimes they really suck to live through and we are terrible to each other and evil to each other sometimes. But still, all the good stuff, it's here. Part of the deeper country, a deeper layer that we sometimes can catch glimpses of. And those glimpses can sustain us for everything else. There is a deeper country. There is a God layer to our experience. And we want to know it more and more and more. This is what's hard about joy. Um, When we think about our most joyful experiences, they often seem spontaneous, (laughs) not recreatable, right? They just sort of happened to us or didn't happen to us. Uh, So if you are feeling joyless, if you are in one of those deserts where joy does not feel available, where it does not feel close to the surface, where you aren't feeling that deepness, you aren't seeing that God layer, it can be frustrating and painful because you want it, but how do you make something so big, so spontaneous, so beautiful happen in your life? You can't make yourself be joyful all the time, and the people who try, often it backfires (laughs) greatly. But we can prepare ourselves, I think, to see joy more often than we do. We can work to make joy a greater part of our daily experience than it is. And I know that because I've met, and I think many of us have met, those people for whom joy is not momentary, but it's a deep, state of being. It's something that they carry around with them through different circumstances. This is what we see in the psalmist that's so important, right? That the psalmist in Psalm 30, she begins, um, I will exalt you, Lord, for you lifted me out of the depths, but then tells a story of when um, her circumstances seemed so much her experience, she was angry at God and couldn't feel anything else. When I felt secure, I said I would never be shaken, right? When I had money, when I had a house, when, I, like, when things were going good, you and me, we were awesome, right? God and I, we were tight, it was great. When you favored me, you made my royal mountain stand firm. But when you hid your face, I was dismayed. Something went wrong, right? Something went wrong in this mountain she had experienced of safety and security. Something felt different, something felt off, something happened to her that she didn't want, Um, and she assumed that it was 
that God had removed God's presence. If things aren't going as good for me anymore as they used to, it must be because God is no longer present with me. If I don't have the money and the house and the status and the people, if I don't have the certainty and the safety and the mountain and the security, God must not be with me. God must not be here. God must be hiding. But by the end of the song, of this song of joy, to the Lord I called and cried with mercy, it doesn't say, then you turned my bad circumstances into good ones. Right? It doesn't say, then you fixed it, and I got my mountain back, and I knew that you were there. It doesn't say, um, then things were fine, and so I was fine, and thanks for fixing it all. Thanks for making everything cool. It says, you turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy, that my heart may sing your praises and not be silent. The circumstances didn't change. Her experience of them did. Her response to them did. The place of her heart did. The wailing was turned into dancing and the mourning into joy because joy comes, they tell us in the morning. There was some way for her to see her way to praise and to see her way to joy even when nothing about her life necessarily changed. So how do we do that? How do we find joy? How do we seek joy? How do we reveal that layer of existence? I think there are a couple things, and none of them are easy and none of them are guaranteed, but they're all better. (laughs) They're all better than sitting there. And they're to notice, to thank, and to sing. You notice, you thank, and you sing. And the noticing part is the part that I think our all-happiness-no-joy society is the worst at and has done the least to teach us about. When's the last time you noticed the leaves? (laughs) When's the last time you noticed the person in your neighborhood who is filled with gifts? When's the last time you noticed something to be thankful for that you had not taken note of before? Or are you moving so fast? Are you so concerned with what other people think of you or what you have to do next or how long the checklist has gotten? that you never notice the deeper country, the deeper layers that so often take a minute to see. They don't shout themselves to us. It takes time to see where they are living. I heard a radio story I loved. Um, Some of you may know it about a man who um, got a sort of disease of some kind, which was later cured, where he lost all of his testosterone production, stopped making testosterone, which um, in all of us, men, women, all genders, uh, is what kind of drives you to want stuff, right? To like be competitive and go for things and achieve. Um, And it's bad to lose it all, right? Because then you don't want to like feed yourself. (laughs) This, This needed to be fixed, but But what he described as being remarkable about his experience of not having that achieve meter on, of not having that want switch flipped, was that as he walked around the world, he said he saw everything, and his first thought about literally everything he saw was, that's beautiful. Sidewalk crack, that's beautiful. Door, that's beautiful. Person's face, that's beautiful. Rose, that's beautiful. 
what if we let go, not of all, right, but if, of some of our need to impress, of some of our need to do, of some of our need to act? Would it reveal to us a part of our heart that can look at anything and go, that's beautiful? That can look at anything and see something in it, something, some, some seed to be grateful for, to, to wonder at, to be impressed by. Because in the end, if we believe in a creator God, we believe that that God created everyone, right? Created everyone, created every person. Um, and there's something, something beautiful in every aspect of our experience. I'm glad he's healed, but I, I hope he kept some of that, right? because I know it makes a difference to me to know that that's possible, to walk around more deliberately with more attention. This is why meditation, we're going to talk about spiritual practices in late August, so get excited for that, but this is why meditation, um, rather in, in addition to prayer, is such a wonderful spiritual practice, because prayer teaches you to communicate with God, right? To talk to God and to hear God's words and to form that relationship, but meditation teaches you to be still enough to be quiet enough, to rid yourself of words enough that you might notice what God is already doing wherever you are, what God has already made wherever you go. You have to notice, and you have to put practices in place in your life to help you notice, because otherwise you won't. We live in a world that's not going to help you notice the joyful and the beautiful things. The second is to thank Right? You may have all of the noticing, or you may be surrounded by beauty. Some of you may be in art museums, right? But, but without thankfulness, without gratitude, it all crumbles. <laughs> it all falls apart. Um, and starting to thank more is so easy. It's so easy. It's so simple. Um, so many people's lives have, have legitimately been changed by saying thank you to one more person a day than you usually do, right? Deliberately finding someone to thank. Thank you for opening that door. Thank you for always answering the phone, woman at the office whose name, right, I've never said before. Thank you for um, handing me the coffee, right? Person at Intelligentsia who I got coffee from this morning. Saying thank you to someone. Having a thank you journal, writing five things a day that you're thankful for. Having a thank you person, sharing with someone one thing that you're thankful for. These practices of gratitude, you know them already. You've heard of them, right? They're so rote at this point, but it's because they actually work. <laughs> it's because they actually work. It's because they change your life. My father-in-law, Roy, um, is one of the sweetest people that I know, and he is a guy who is one of the most um, state of joy people I've ever met, right? Not just moments of joy, but state of joy. He just projects joy wherever he goes. And his uh, motto is attitude of gratitude. He'll tell, he'll, he'll tell it to you no matter where, you, you're, where you're doing. Attitude of gratitude, right? I got to have an attitude of gratitude. Um, and for a long time, I loved that, but I also just thought, oh, that's just something that comes easily to him, right? That's a part of his personality. He's just somebody who's really thankful for whatever he experiences. Because it seemed like that. It seemed like he was happy all the time, but it also seemed like things were going pretty well, right? So like, OK, sure, you have an attitude of gratitude. That's wonderful. That's good for you. I love seeing it. But it's just something that comes naturally to you. And then in the last six months, um, he has had some medical issues, uh, thank God, that he's recovering from, um, but that have kept him from doing all of the things that he loves the most. 
He's a big athlete. He walks and runs a lot. Um, he is a servant to the world. He is a chaplain in hospitals, prays with people. And he hasn't been able to do any of those things. And I've started to see for the first time how he maintains his attitude of gratitude when he is deeply struggling. It doesn't go away. It doesn't go away. He doesn't let it go. But he's also not lying, which is what I hear from so many people who just say to be thankful, right? who say to have a positive attitude. Um, they say to have a positive attitude, and then they pretend that nothing is going wrong. He's one of the few people I know who he's really honest. He says, this is really hard. Like I have been really sad and frustrated the last week that I haven't been able to do any of the things that give me joy. I am scared of what comes next. I am scared that I will never be able to do these things again. And I am so thankful that I am still alive. <laughs> I am so thankful that I am still here. He can be honest and be thankful, and it's a choice that he makes. It's a choice that he makes as a part of his spiritual life, and it's an inspiration to me to know that, yes, it comes naturally to him, but I could also probably do some work to make it come more naturally to me. <laughs> it's available. It's available as a possibility. It's something that could be a part of my life, to notice and then to thank to notice and to thank. But then there's a third move, there's a third step, which can feel um, the hardest, which is to sing. And by sing, I mean sing, but I also mean dance, and I also mean paint your own pottery, and I also mean whatever it is to you to create and to step into the world and do something that has given you joy or shown you wonder before to act as, as a co-creator, the way that God invites us to when God has given us these impulses, right, for beauty and color and joy and wonder. Do something, right? Act, sing, dance. When we are in the midst of sorrow or when our world is in the midst of sorrow, right, this has been a tough summer, <laughs> and um, any election year is always tough, right, because it feels like the whole conversation is about things that are painful and things that really matter and things that might never get better. So your, your whole mind and heart sort of get uh, possessed by this like cynical, pessimistic view. Um, to just decide to sing and dance and be joyful for a minute, to throw a party in the middle of that. Um, some folks say that, oh, well, that's not appropriate, right? Or that's, uh, uh, yeah, it's not appropriate. How can you choose, choose to sing, choose to dance? Um, I don't know about you, but all of the times that I've laughed the hardest have been at a funeral of someone that I loved deeply. Sometimes you have to. <laughs> Sometimes you have to. Those are the most important times to say, okay, it's not appropriate. The circumstances are terrible, and we can still sing a song. The circumstances are awful, and we can still dance around. I don't know what comes next, but I can still draw with my colored pencil something that makes me happy and I can enter into joy because joy is a part of creation and beauty and wonder at all times. I can enter into joy. I can choose. I read a story seeking after this this week of a woman who grew up in extraordinary poverty um, but her mother had grown up um, with more resources and had gotten dance lessons throughout her life. And her mother started um, trying to offer dance lessons in their town, which also most of the community was very, very poor. Um, Hours-long dance lessons, advanced dance lessons. 
And people started bringing everything to barter for these dance lessons, anything they could find, egg, pieces of wood, right, what they had because they didn't have money. Um, and the woman writing, the daughter, who was a child at the time, at first was amazed, right? Wow, like, of all the things to sacrifice for, why dance? Um, but of all the things you need, of course, dance. You need joy, no matter what's happening to you. Without it, you won't live. Without it, you won't be sustained. Joy is what keeps us through the hard times the hard times. Joy, Willie Jennings, um, this great theologian, says that joy is an act that resists despair. Joy is an act of resistance. It is precisely in the toughest and most oppressive times, even if we ourselves, right, are feeling oppressed or a part of it, that joy becomes an action that puts a lie to, that's the, only, to, to the idea that that's the only thing that can ever be. Plus, it keeps you alive. It keeps you alive. Joy is never frivolous. Joy is never something you don't deserve. Joy is never something you should put off to be more serious. Jesus, right? So our party, next, next worship um, that I hope you all can stay for, is going to be wedding at Cana themed. And that's in part, right, because it's the summer, so everybody's been to a lot of weddings recently, probably. Um, but it's also Jesus, after he lived a life and had brothers and had a mom and lived that human life so that he could know us in our humanity, connect to us in our humanity, when he had been drawn forth by God and gotten baptized and been tested in the desert, when he started his public ministry, when he started his ministry to the world, his messages to the people, what is the first miracle he did? What is the first miracle he performed? Did he uh, overthrow the centurions to make justice be? Did he heal all of the sick immediately? No. He went to a wedding. <laughs> he went to a wedding. And he turned water into wine so that it would be a good party. <laughs> so that it would be a good party. And so that the hosts of that party would not be ashamed, but would be filled with happiness and joy. Joy is our sustenance for the journey. And sometimes you got to make it and you got to claim it, and you can't just wait for it. You have to watch and notice. You have to think and bless. You have to make and create and ask joy to be a part of you, because the stars, the morning stars, are singing a song. The stars are singing a song. The heavens are inviting us to dance. The world has a deep God layer of wonder at work. And the question is, will we sing with them? Will we join in? Will we give ourselves permission to breathe and be happy and be more than happy and be joyful as Jesus chose to be, as God invites us to be, and let it sustain us through whatever comes next? I hope we will. And let's start by throwing a party. Amen? Amen. Amen.